0: This morning, my name is Michael. How are we all going? Good 8 a.m. was way more rambunctious than that. So you guys have another half hour to catch up. But thank you so much for joining us. I'm not actually sure. I think our broadcast audio might not be working. So I could be doing stuff like this, and they don't actually know what is happening here in the room. They're just thinking, wow, I wish I could hear what he was saying right now. Hope you guys can join us again really soon. They didn't hear that either. Friends, um, if this is your first time with us today, uh, I'd just love to say thank you for joining us. My name is Michael, as I said, and today's a bit of a special celebration for me because tomorrow it's November the 1st, and November the 1st marks my first year as lead minister of New Life uh, Church. It's awesome. Thank you so much for clapping. I hope you clapped yourselves because you survived year one. You survived year one. I just wanted to say that, not so that you can congratulate me, but so that we might together just remember the faithfulness of God of the last year. Has he not been faithful? Has he not done amazing things? And once again, we have seen that new life is not about one pastor or one name other than the name of Jesus. And I'm so excited and thankful to be on this journey with you all. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm excited you're here. Great. Would you join with me as we pray? Father, I thank you so much that we can be here today, that we can just pause. Father, I thank you that in these moments, if we come before your word and sit under the weight of scripture and we, we, we allow you to, to speak to us. I pray that you would remove distractions, help us to to be still enough that we wouldn't hear Michael's voice, but the voice of the Holy Spirit. For God, you were good. But not all of us in this room have known your goodness or believe in your goodness. Not all of us believe that you are a good, loving God. And so today I pray that we might encounter the God that can be trusted, the God that is faithful, the God that is love. Intersect with our stories and our journeys with where we are right now. Speak to us. We pray. The mighty name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said. Friends, uh, today I get the privilege of finishing our series on crucial conversations with the topic of suffering. Next week, we're looking at doing a QA. and a we want to address all those topics that maybe have stirred up for you over the last couple of weeks. But uh, next week, we're going to create a bit of space, just unpack any of the questions or thoughts that this series has stirred up for you over deconstruction, women in leadership, miracles in medicine, and suffering today. Having said that, however, when I think about suffering, I remember distinctly the first time that I saw my firstborn child, Archer, encounter suffering. Now, I have, a, I have a young two-year-old. If you're here between services or after this one, he's the guy that just runs around and does laps in the courtyard. And it's the question you ask is, who the heck is this person's parent? That's me. That's my child. And, and I remember when I first saw Arthur suffer. Now, when babies are brought into the world, they all suffer in some way because they're hungry and so they cry. They're sleepy. They want to sleep, so they cry. They want to cuddle, so they cry. I'm not talking about that suffering. I'm talking about preventive Unjust suffering inflicted upon him. You see, when he was about three months old, my wife turned to me and said, Okay, sweetie, as he's growing, you need to make sure you don't leave Archer alone on the bed. And I'm like, Why? He's a blob. What's he going to do? It's not like he can jump up and run off the edge of the bed. Like he's completely unimpressive in his dexterity. And so I think he'll be fine. She's like, No, no, no. He could roll off the bed. I'm like, I'd be impressed if he could, but sure, I'll trust your word for it. So my wife one day goes out to the groceries and leaves me alone with Archer, uh, and, which was great. I was really excited to have some time with Archer and I wanted to change my shirt. So to do that, I put Archer on the bed and I'm like, okay, I'll be in the same room as him. This will be fine. And so I went to my wardrobe to pull out a shirt, found out it was in the laundry. I looked at Archer, who was a blob. And I looked at the laundry, which is down the other end of the house. And I'm like, I reckon I can make it to the laundry. And back in time, I don't think you're going to do anything impressive. So I built a pillow fort around my son. And then I like dashed down to the laundry. And as I get to the laundry and I'm finding my shirt, I hear this loud douche. And I'm like, surely that's not my son. And then there's silence. Now, I'm a three-month-old parent, so I think silence is a good thing. For those of you who are parents, you know it's always silent before the storm. Three seconds later, this loud piss. I'm like, oh no, he's rolled off the bed. I come running into the room at the exact same moment that my wife gets home from groceries. She's like, what did you do? I'm like, what did he do? We had a deal. Why is he not better at life? I picked up my son and I remember this was his first experience of unjust suffering. He didn't ask for it. He did nothing to deserve it. And I'm holding him crying and my wife's crying. I'm crying. And I'm like, I never want him to hurt again. And I realized that actually, here's the fact he will hurt again. And I'm like, I want to wrap him up in bubble wrap so that he never falls off another bed. He never has his heart broken. He never has financial troubles. He never loses a car. He never loses. Job. I'm like, I don't want this boy to suffer. And I have an epiphany, epiphany moment where I realise he will suffer for the rest of his life. So I looked at him as he was crying. And I said, life is suffering, mate. And I put him back on the bed. <laughs> oh, really. My wife and I are good now. I'd love to tell you that was the last time that that happened. He rolled off the bed another two times under my care. The last time my wife and I had a long conversation around what it meant to not leave my son alone on the bed. Now, if you ever meet my son, you'll understand why he is the way he is. Not really. But why do I say this? Because, friends, the truth is, is as much as we are going to protect our children or our loved ones or even ourselves, the most universal human experience is suffering. The most universal human experience is suffering. I can't guarantee that everyone will know joy. I can't guarantee that everyone will know comfort. I can't guarantee that everyone will know the unconditional love that we celebrate here as followers of Christ. But I can guarantee that every human being will encounter suffering. And this universality of this experience makes this a little hard today. Because we're not talking about deconstruction where some of us are going through it. You're not observing a topic for somebody else, every one of us have intimate and painful stories of suffering. I don't know why you're here, but the heaviness of the stories in the room that I don't know weighed on me as I prepared this week. Those of you who right now have had bad doctor's reports. Those of you right now who financial concerns and COVID and businesses closing down or struggles, it's real. Those of you right now who know the sting and pain of mental health. There's some people in this room who you're suffering through loneliness. And you just want someone to know you. I don't know your story. But I know and can guarantee every one of us either is, has, or will walk through suffering. The problem with this is that I don't think... There are any easy answers. I don't think that at the end of today, we're gonna come out with an easy formula to apply to your life that's gonna make everything seem better. And that's not my hope. My hope for today is not to offer you a treatise on suffering and how the Bible explains it all so you can wrap yourself up a little bit warmer late at night. Because it's just not my experience. Over the last 10 years of being a pastor in this church, what I've found is grief is hard. I've sat with some of you as as we sat beside the bed of a dying loved one. I've cried with some of you who have heard those doctors' reports that are just not what you were hoping for. When we talked about financial struggles, loneliness, or mental health, these are the stories of people not over there, but here and online. You know what this means. So I want to take us for a moment into a story where Jesus himself encounters the reality of suffering. I'm just move through three scenes in this story that help give us a scope for where we're going to head today, because ultimately suffering causes us to ask two questions: Does suffering disprove God's existence? Maybe you've asked this question, or you know someone that has. And some of you will ask a different question: Why does a good God allow us to suffer? These are good questions that I don't think have easy answers. But I do think in the life of Christ, we find that he doesn't shy away from speaking into them, encountering them, and walking through them. So today, through this story, what we're going to do is we're going to do three things. We're going to look at the case of suffering, the model for suffering, and finally, the hope of suffering. And we we read this in John chapter 11, verse 1, where we pick up a story where Jesus has retreated from Judea because everyone's out to get him, and he's with his disciples when a report comes to him. We read this story. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. Now, who was Lazarus? The writer tells us. Lazarus was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. I love how much context the writer gives us because he goes on and says, this Mary that we're talking about, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. What's the writer doing? He's saying, this is not just a random person who's come across the path of Christ. This is someone he knows. This is someone he loves. This is someone he cares for. And so the report comes. So the sisters of Lazarus sent word to Jesus. And what was the word? Lord, the one you love is sick. This is a rich story. Because we see Jesus himself step into a moment where he hears a report about a loved one who is not doing well. And I say that because many of you know what that last line feels like. The one you love is sick. Some of you know what it's like to get that phone call. Hey, the operation didn't go as planned. Hey, the scans revealed that there's just some more complications. Hey, I... I, I... I don't know how to say this, but I'm just not doing well with our relationship right now. COVID, there's been some pressure. We're going to have to relook at your job. Hey, I'm struggling with my mental health. I don't know what it is for you, but we've all received a report like this at some stage. Hey, things are not so good as you would hope. And these moments can undermine our faith. These moments, these reports can undermine us and and, and start to fill us with doubt and cause us to question and turn our anger towards God. A great philosopher named Epicurus, uh, whether he was great or not, a philosopher named Epicurus actually says that suffering forces us to ask a question which may very well disprove the existence of God. He phrases the questions like this. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not all-powerful. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Or evil? Is he both able and willing? Then why da is there evil? In these three questions, we have the summation of what the secular world and those who don't believe in Jesus, and maybe some of us who do, have with the problem of evil and suffering in our world. This is an argument that doesn't just seek to disprove the existence of God, but if God is real, then it seeks to undermine His character and say God mustn't be good because suffering is there. However, I believe that the idea of evil in the presence of suffering doesn't actually prove as a good argument against God. And and let me explain why. Because there is a moment Where we have to ask, where's our idea of evil and suffering come from? A guy named Dan Patterson and Rian Rue wrote a book called Questioning Christianity. Great book, and I encourage you to read it. And Dan recounts his story about how he saw his mother get severely injured at a young age in a car accident. And he questioned the existence of God. But he realized that God's lack of existence didn't solve the problem of evil and suffering. He says "If you take away God from reality, but evil and suffering still remain. It means that in a world without God, you bump into an entirely new problem. Namely, how do you account for the evilness of evil, as well as our intuition that suffering is not how things ought to be? How can you explain the very thing that made him reject Christianity in the first place? What's he saying here? Suffering is a universal experience. But if we have a problem with suffering, it must mean there is something ingrained in us which says this, this is not the way the world should be. Where does that come from? Because if God is not real, then suffering isn't a problem to solve. It's a meaningless fact to walk through. C.S. Lewis actually unpacks this a bit further. Because ultimately, what, what we're questioning here is the fact that we anguish over suffering The fact that we find the presence of evil so unjust highlights that there is something deep inside every single one of our hearts that recognizes suffering and evil as not the right created order. We protest against these things. We anguish over these things. Why? Because they do not line up with how we believe reality should be. Cancer is not okay. We would agree across the the room and online today, we would all join together and say poverty is a travesty. Disease, pain, hunger, depression, anxiety, crime, injustice, abuse, all these things are not good, but they are real and they exist. And so why do we fight against them or grieve them if they're just statements of reality? Why do our hearts long for a world other than the one that we experience? Unless there was another world to long for. C.S. Lewis found this presence of suffering and evil part of the original reason why he was an atheist. But then he became a Christian. And simply he became a Christian because he says it like this. My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Ultimately, the greatest question we have to ask is what is the cause of suffering? What is the cause of suffering and why do we rail against its existence? See, we struggle with suffering because we blame God for the brokenness of our world. We walk through hard times and we turn around like, what the hell are you doing, God? Where are you right now? But the problem that the Epicurean argument raises, this idea of if God is willing and able, why is there evil? Places the complete responsibility for the presence of evil in the world on him. And it removes human agency. It removes any responsibility that you and I have contributed to the broken state of the world. And that is not the Christian story. Why? Because the Christian story doesn't start with a world made wrong, but with a world made right. Back in the beginning of this year, this is why we began with Genesis 1 to 11. Because we wanted to build a biblical worldview. Genesis is not a nice Sunday school story, but essential reading for anyone that wants a Christian worldview resilient against suffering. Because in Genesis, we find out in 1 and 2 that God created the heavens and the earth, and He called them? Wow. I think we do better than that. And He called them? Good. They were created good. In the beginning of time, sickness, darkness, death, depression, these things were not around. So what happened? What screwed up the plan of God? Well, God, in the middle of all creation, created beings to co-rule and co-reign and caretake with Him out of an expression of relational love. He says, in our image, we shall make man and woman. And He put them over creation and said, out of our love together, take care of the world around you. But do not eat of the tree of good and evil. And we look around and go, well, why would God put a caveat on that unless He wanted them to stumble? It's because God knew that what he wanted with humanity was not a robotic automaton that just served him out of obligation, but out of the free will of our expressive desire relationship that was an expression of our choice, not our servitude. Because see, God was playing the long game of eternity, not just the momentary existence of how to make things run well for a short period of time. And so he gave humanity choice. And what did humanity choose? Humanity chose to eat of the tree of good and evil. Why? Because we want to decide what's right and wrong. Because we want the decision to choose, hey, what is good and what is bad. We want to sit in the throne room of God. And so humanity rebelled against God. And when you rebel against the source of all life, there's only one other option. That is entropy. That is death in and of itself. The reason why I say this, friends, is not because this makes suffering any easier, but because it explains why suffering exists at all. Suffering exists because humanity, since the dawn of time, has been rebelling against the will and the way of God. Now, I want to be clear. When I was a young man, my mom struggled with a really serious illness, and someone came along to her and said, your sickness is because of your sin. And I want to be clear, that is unbiblical, ungodly, and untrue. That is not what we are saying today. We're not saying that someone's individual suffering is because of their individual sin. We're saying that the brokenness in our world was not the way God intended it to be. What broke the world was evilness born out of the heart of man, and it's been breaking the world ever since. Not all suffering comes from evil, but evil spawns the fruit of suffering. And this is important for us because I believe it actually answers the question where we actually realize that why does this happen? Dan Patterson says, when you drill down into Genesis, what you unearth is the explanation that the presence of evil and suffering, at least for a time, is the cost for love to exist. Suffering and evil exists because God gave humanity a choice. And we chose everything but Him. You can't understand the biblical discussion of evil and suffering without the garden without actually first looking inside the human heart. And every day, do we not choose to live for ourselves? The brokenness of this world is because mankind has chosen to live without God. And why is this important? So we might remember that evil was never God's intention for His creation, but it was always an option for His creation to choose. See, our hearts long for a world without suffering because your heart was created for a world without suffering. You were created... To enjoy God's creation in its perfect form, not in its pain and its brokenness that so many of us experience. Sin broke that reality. But here is the truth. Even though we rebelled against God, God is moving. God is at work. God is turning things around. So we move from the cause of suffering and a bad report. Lord, the one you love is sick. Come with me back to the story of Mary and Martha. Well, we skip ahead a couple of verses and we find after four days, Jesus arrives and Lazarus is no longer sick. He's dead. And he's confronted by the grief of Mary and Martha. And in this moment, friends, we move from the cause of suffering to the model for suffering. We can talk about where does suffering come from, but what I want to know is how does Jesus respond to suffering? And in these two moments, God made man. Gives us two responses to suffering. There is a response of hope and there is a response of compassion. And it not only teaches how Jesus responds to our suffering, I think it challenges us how we might respond to each other. He comes across Martha and Martha runs up to him and she says, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Martha comes up to her and in her anger, she's like, if you've been here, I know you could have solved this problem. But she finishes with this beautiful statement of faith. But hey, I still know you're able to do something amazing. In her grief, Martha is still throwing her trust on to Jesus. So Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answers, and I don't think it's on the screen, so I'll read it from my notes. Martha answers in verse 24, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Then he asked her this question, do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. What is happening here? Thanks, my man. Thanks, Mark. What is happening in this story? You see, Jesus is highlighting one of the greatest questions that suffering asks of us all. Who do you actually believe God is, and do you trust him? Whenever someone walks through suffering or encounters evil, it will force us to reckon with this question. Who do you actually believe God is, and do you trust him? This is a hard reality, because in the middle of the pain, Jesus and Martha are having a theological conversation. Her faith is tested, and he offers her hope in response to her grief. See, friends, suffering reveals so much about us, but it mainly reveals what we believe about God. The greatest question that we can answer before we walk through hardship is is what you believe about God, what the Bible says of God, and do you actually trust him, not just in the mountaintop, but in the valley? Jesus responds to Martha in a way of theology, in a way of hope. And in that moment, Jesus calls Martha deeper into trust in the middle of her suffering. And maybe some of you are sitting here today and you hear me say that and you're like, you know what, Michael, how dare you ask me, do I trust God in the middle of my pain? How dare you question what I believe about God in the middle of my hurt? And I would say, I completely agree. But sometimes when we are in a hard moment, theological questions are the last thing we need to answer. And so Jesus not only offers a response of hope, he offers a response of compassion. Martha runs off and says to Mary, Mary, Jesus is here. Jesus is here. And Mary comes running back and has a very different interaction with Jesus. To Martha, we see Jesus' response of theology. But with Mary, it's something completely different. The story goes on. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What is Mary saying to Jesus? Where were you? He was sick and you knew. Why were you not around? You could have stopped this. This kind of raw emotion, can be uncomfortable for us. I don't know if you should talk to God like that. Is that allowed? Surely Jesus is like, poof, lightning. Like, what happens in this moment? Does Jesus reprimand her? Does he challenge her? Does he go, hey, you should go talk to Martha, because she has a really good theological understanding of what went down in this moment. No, he doesn't. And this is so critical, friends, because some of you relate more to Mary than Martha. You're in this moment, you're like, where are you? This hurts. Can you see this hurting? What does Jesus do? Story goes on. Story goes on. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And what does Jesus do in response to their grief? Well, let me explain to you why he's died and why suffering's in the world. If you come back with me to Genesis chapter 3, it'll make a lot of sense why this hurts right now. No, Jesus wept. Jesus cried. And this should blow our minds. Can, Can I tell you why? He knows how the story ends, he knows what he's about to do. One of the greatest miracles. He's about to raise Lazarus back to life. Knowing what he knew, he still weeps with Mary. This is a powerful exposition of the character of God and the call to the Christian and our response to suffering. What we see in God is not a God who sits back and goes, guys, I know it sucks right now, but I know how the story ends. I'm the author of all things. Trust me, it'll be fine. I know it hurts. No, a God who grieves when you grieve, a God who cries when you cry, who knows that what you're walking through right now is not the end of the story, but what you need from him isn't a theological lesson. You need his tears, and he freely gives them. Because the world he created, it grieves him more than us, that it is broken by evil, and so he weeps, he grieves, he laments, friends. And I say this to us because as Christians, sometimes we are the most unhelpful people when people are walking through suffering. We rock up in their moment and they've gone through profound pain, and we're like, hey, Jeremiah 29 11, I know the plans I have for you says a lot. And people are like, I don't care what it says in Jeremiah, I'm hurting. What people need in grief isn't theology, but our tears, isn't our answers, but our presence. This is what Jesus shows us, and He shows us how He rocks up right now in your suffering, in your grief, in your moment of trial. What Jesus shows us is a biblical practice of something called lament. Lament is something we've forgotten. It's like it's not okay to cry. Like there's something wrong if we're grieving. But throughout the Bible, there is often more grief than there is happiness. There is more tears than there is celebration because there's a recognition the world is not the way it should be. And to lament is a deep responsibility and right of the Christian. There is a book in the Bible called Lamentations about lamenting. If you read through the Psalms, sometimes David's like, Yo, Jesus, you're my shepherd. You lead me beside still waters. And sometimes he's just naked in it all and being like, Where are you, God? which gives us permission, which gave me permission at the age of 21 when I went through one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. And I thought I'd done everything God had called me to do. I was a youth pastor. I was serving him. I was tithing. I was attending church. I was in small group reading my Bible. And still my world came crashing down in a moment of raw suffering. I remember going down the back of my house and I said words I can't say on stage because I want to keep my job. But I said, God, where are you? Where are you? How dare you do this to me? And I remember as I railed against God, I eventually paused to catch a breath. And I remember the still small voice of the Holy Spirit descending in that moment saying, now we're being real. And I remember feeling not condemnation, but belonging. God is not afraid of your grief. He grieves more than you do. He calls you to invite him into it. Because sometimes our grief leads us to ask this question. My voice just got louder. Why do bad things happen to good people? You can't be honest. The only person that actually is allowed to ask that question is God himself. For who is good? Who is good? Who's actually never done anything wrong? Surely the only person that can complain against injustice on their life is a man named Jesus, and you never hear him ask it. Never on the cross as he is hanging there, paying the price for our sins, do you hear Jesus go, why do bad things happen to me? He's not asking this question He's offering something different. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The one I healed, the one that I delivered, that person who I love, forgive them, for they know not what they do to the only good and perfect man that has ever existed. Friends, the beauty of suffering is that Jesus doesn't only offer us his tears. He offers us his life. Jesus doesn't sit on a throne saying, hey, I know how the story ends. He enters into the story as a man. And he becomes one of us to walk the road that we've walked, to live a life that we've lived, and to die a death that you and I should have died. Why? To join you in your protest in saying, this is not how things should be, Jesus says, and this is not how things will be. I will change the narrative. See, in response to the rebellion of humanity, Jesus just didn't come down and fix poverty. He doesn't just come down and fix disease. He came down first to fix the source of all the problems, the heart of humanity. And on the cross of Jesus Christ, we see Him bear the brunt and weight of our rebellion, our sin, and our shame. Why? So that we know, not only does He agree the world is not the way it should be, but secondly, so that He might provide you a way back into the way the world will be in His name and by His power. This is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That when we look at the cross, we look at the only God in any world religion who would suffer for those He created. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. Does this answer the question, why is my child? Why is my grandmother? Why is this? Why is that? Why am I in the middle of suffering right now? Why has God not stopped it? No, it doesn't. But Peter Kreef says it like this, God didn't come to earth as Jesus to get himself off the hook. He came to earth as Jesus to put himself on the hook. Tim Keller says it beautifully. Tim Keller says it beautifully. Why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? And we look at the cross of Jesus and we still do not know what the answer is. Just hear that for a second. Just like in Job, the cross doesn't provide answers to why your suffering is ongoing. But it does provide an answer. However, Keller goes on, we now know that the answer isn't, and it can't be, that God doesn't love you. It can't be that he is indifferent or detached from our condition because God takes our misery and our suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. That's why I loved when Scott said last week, if you think your suffering right now is evidence that God doesn't love you, then how much must God not have loved Jesus? But that's not true. God loved Jesus and sent him into the moment, which is why we know the story doesn't finish with tears, but with an empty tomb. It doesn't finish with a full cross, but an empty one. And so in the story of Mary and Martha, we read on in verse 41 and 43, so they took away the stone and Jesus, after weeping, looks up and he prays a prayer and he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew you would always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you have sent me. Then he says this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come. Out, the dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, "Take off the grave clothes and let him go." Lazarus comes back to life in a beautiful end to the story of Mary, Martha, Lazarus's suffering. Jesus answers their suffering with a beautiful miracle. But here is the problem with how this story ends: it wraps up too nicely, doesn't it? Because our stories don't always end that way. The body still remains in the tomb for some of us. The suffering still persists. It's still. So what's going on here and why is this good news? The writer of John is not saying, hey, Lazarus' story gets to be your story in your situation. He's saying Lazarus' story foreshadows not just the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus, but it foreshadows what one day Jesus will do for all of humanity and creation. It shows that Jesus looked death square in the eye and said, I have power here. Because here's the beauty here's what we need to recognize. Is Lazarus still alive? Like, have you met a dude named Lazarus that 2,000 years ago was raised from the dead? Is he still wandering around somewhere? So what happened to Lazarus? He died. He, He went on to suffer again. He went on to die again. So Jesus just raised him back to life so that one day in 20 years time, he died again. This doesn't make sense. We need to recognize this. When God heals or relieves us from suffering, he doesn't finish all suffering forever. It's a moment. This is why Scott said last week that miracles are signs and wonders which point to a coming kingdom, not the evidence that it's done forever yet. See, what Jesus does, he says, what I did in this tomb, one day I'll do in my own tomb. And one day I'll do in every tomb. One day, every heart that has turned to me and been transformed by me, I will call to be renewed and perfected. One day, the Bible tells us that there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more sickness. And we know this because the most important question we can ask if we're struggling with faith is not why is suffering, but is Jesus who He said He was? Did He die on a cross and did He raise from the dead? Because if those three things are true, if those three things are true, then we have a hope that whilst there is suffering in this world, God isn't finished yet. God isn't finished yet. And that's the hope we cling to in the middle of our pain. It may not keep us warmer at night, but it allows suffering to do a work in us. Because I believe, friends, more powerfully than ever, that not only do we have a cause for suffering, not only do we have a model, but we have a hope in our suffering. That suffering may be the fruit of evil, but it is also the tool of God to do something in and through us. So as I finish today, I want to suggest that suffering remains in our world until the coming of our King to accomplish three things. It does this. It reveals something in us. It refines something for us. And it reminds something to us. What does it reveal in us? Well, we've already touched on this. I think suffering, more than anything, reveals what we believe about God and what we actually trust in. It's not hard to believe in God when the bank account's going up and to the right, when health is okay, when all things are good. In fact, I want to suggest when life's going good, we rarely even think about God. But when stuff starts going wrong, then we're like, where is God right now? And it actually forces us to come to a reckoning of what we actually think about what God is doing and who He is. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verse 12 to 13, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come unto you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. What's Peter saying here? There is nowhere in the Bible where it says, if you come to be a Christian, life gets better. No, your eternity gets better. Life gets harder. In fact, Jesus promises this to his disciples in John chapter 16. He says this, I have told you these things so you may have peace. In this world, you will have riches and health and everything good. Now in this world, you will have trouble and take heart. I have overcome the world. Friends, can I just say this? If you are not yet a Christian and you're wanting a faith that promised you Teslas and riches and health, you're in the wrong place. Jesus seems to be pretty adamant about those who follow him will go through hardship. But he's pretty adamant as well that they will never be alone, that they will have peace, that there will be hope. Friends, what is suffering revealing in you about what you believe about God? because that's what suffering does. It causes us to ask ourselves, who do I actually believe God is right now? The story that changed this for me was a story by Craig Groeschel when he spoke about suffering with his daughter. He spoke about a moment where she had to really work out what she believed about his character, same way suffering calls us to work out what we believe about the character of God. There's a moment when Craig Groeschel's daughter at the age of seven was on a flying fox and she came down the flying fox and the brakes at the end of the flying fox failed. And he tells a story as she went sailing through the flying fox, uh, flying fox brakes and went smack into the tree at the other end. And he says the crack in his ears as her father is something he still lives through today. He ran to her and picked up his daughter whose face was torn, there's pieces of bark all embedded. And he raced her to hospital. And in hospital, she wouldn't let anyone touch her because she was in so much pain. So the doctor said to her, we need you to lie on top of her and just hold her down he says, he remembers the moment lying on top of his seven-year-old daughter, holding her down and just saying, hey, trust daddy right now. I know it hurts. She's like, daddy, why would you let them hurt me? Why are you not stopping what they're trying to do? Daddy, this hurts. Daddy, stop this. And he's looking at her. And in that moment, he can't explain to her what she can't understand. He says, just trust me. Hey, trust me. I love you. You don't understand what they're trying to do is good here. But just trust me in this moment. And so much, I remember this moment of epiphany for me of so much I don't understand. But one day I will stand before God in heaven and the suffering that he is not relieved, I'll be able to go, God, what was that about? And what he says will make sense. But until that moment, the proof of the cross and the empty tomb means that my Father in heaven can be trusted even when I feel like he is neglected. Do you trust the character of a God who knows how the story ends and holds you in the moment of your suffering and weeps with you? What does is, what is your suffering reveal about what you believe about God? The next thing re- re- suffering does is it refines us. Nothing reveals the inner workings of the human heart like hardship. I'm a great husband when things are going well. I'm awesome. I'm loving. I'm nice. I'm energetic when I had good sleep. But if I'm grumpy, if I'm hangry, or if I've just got a little bit of an attitude, suddenly things start to bubble to the surface when life starts to put the pressure on. And what's actually happening at that moment is suffering bubbles to the surface, the real inner workings of our heart, and allows us to see ourselves as maybe what the good times have hidden. And if we allow, suffering can refine our hearts in a way where I believe what God does with suffering is he refuses to let it to be wasted. Evil is not from God, but suffering is often a tool that God uses to produce good in you when the enemy purposed it for bad. This what happened in the story of Joseph, when Joseph turns to his brother and says, God used what you intended for evil for his good. And this is what I believe can happen in suffering. C.S. Lewis says it like this, God exploits suffering for our good. Maybe you're walking through something difficult right now. Can I ask, what, what might be revealed in your heart that would not have been revealed otherwise? That's why in Romans, Paul writes this, not only so, but we also glory in our, stress, in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Think of that person in your life that you love and respect. That person that has so much wisdom that you're like, oh, when I think of them, I think of integrity and character. I don't know them, but let me guarantee that person has walked through explicit suffering. There is no one in my world that I respect that has not got a story of pain. If pain does something, and God uses what the world intended for evil to produce something beautiful, for the world's good and his glory. Finally, friends, not only does suffering reveal, refine, but it also reminds us. The biblical narrative says this, that one day, the empty cross and the empty tomb points to a future where we will experience a place of no more pain. The when God began at the cross at Calgary, and the empty tomb in the garden, one day he will complete for all humanity. And between now and then, what is God doing? He is working on transforming the human heart, so that so many of us might join Him on that day as we stand before the throne, perfected and in glory. That's why Paul writes in Second Corinthians four verse 16. not that one. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You might be like, why is Paul saying light and momentary troubles? Does he know what I've walked through? Paul was beaten. He was persecuted. He was chased out naked. He was, his life was sought to be killed by the very people he was meant to trust. And eventually he was executed by the Roman Empire. This is the man who says, these these light and momentary troubles. Why? Because he had a greater vision of where he was heading. See, friends, suffering should remind us that whilst there is pain, whilst there is cancer, while there is hardship, while there is sickness, whilst there is evil in our world, it is a reminder that God isn't finished yet. He isn't done How do we know this? Because of the promise in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3 to 4, where John writes that he hears a loud voice from the throne in the future, cast a vision for where we are heading. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. This is the hope we have. One day, friends, I will no longer struggle with anxiety. For I will have a new body in a new heaven and a new earth. I hold on to that hope as we walk through the suffering of reality that my God's not finished yet. Amen? This is the truth we hold on to. Suffering reveals. Suffering refines. Suffering reminds. So are you walking through something right now? Is life hard? Maybe... God's saying, Do you trust me? Maybe God's weeping with you. But I know God's present. Let me finish with the last thought from Dan Patterson in his book. He writes this Even if I don't have many good reasons to believe in Christianity was true, and I was simply wagering on what I wanted to be true, when confronted with the problem of pain, I would genuinely choose to live as though the Christian story is true. Why? For if I'm to face suffering either way, I'd much rather to face suffering with Jesus than without Him. No other religion offers us the hope that Christianity does. No other religion so boldly defines suffering and evil for what it actually is, and then offers us a future that makes sense that God's not finished yet. Would you stand with me wherever you are across this room? And in a moment... The end of this song, I'm gonna actually call section leaders to come down the front and just be waiting because there's you in this room who you know what today's probably stirred up more for you than it solved. You might be walking through some stuff right now with that doctor's report, the one you love is sick, came in and it's hard. I just want to create a moment at the end of this service to weep with you. I can't promise actual tears, but I can promise actual grief, real compassion. Maybe we can see God move. You know, last week I got to pray for a woman in South Africa who the doctors didn't know what was wrong with her body and it was just decaying. And we prayed and that very same night the doctors found the cause and began to treat it in Jesus' name. And it's just amazing. We believe prayer works. We want to pray and ask for God to intersect wherever He's at with each of you. But maybe some of you don't yet know Jesus and the story that you've heard today is a story you want to be yours. It can be. It simply takes by placing your trust not in yourself but in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, I remember moments on my kitchen floor just crying out to you. Where are you? God, there were no easy answers. But Jesus, when I look at you on the cross, I remember that you never ran from our pain. You didn't run from our brokenness. You ran towards it. So I just want to say thank you. Some of us right now, we're we're struggling. God, we are we're in the throes of doubt and grief. It's hard. Teach us the power of lament. To be honest in our pain. That you might teach us the truth of hope. There's some of us here today who we need to know the hope of Jesus, and God, we don't. And if that's you today. I just want to let you know that the way you come to place your trust in Jesus is by asking forgiveness for your sins and then you turn and He carries you home. He walks with you. He becomes your Lord and your Savior and your friend that can be unavailable for you today. But Father, I pray for all of us that in this moment right now, we would not sense an easy answer but a present Savior. The power of your Holy Spirit As we're about to sing, God, you are always the one. You are another in the fire. You don't leave us in trial. You draw close to us. You weep with us. And you remind us that you're not finished yet. Jesus, meet us in our difficulty, in our trouble, and in our pain. As we worship you now. In your mighty name. Amen.